bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this nation. And Lord, in times like these where it seems like we're lost, we've lost our way, our focus in on you. Lord, we know that you reign supreme. And we do declare here in this place, at this time, that it is one nation under God. And we serve you, and we call you Lord, and we call you our master. And we know this country is not great because of who we are and what we do and what we know. It is great because and only because of you. We are gathered here in your name. And your word tells us that when two or more are gathered in your name, you are there. And Lord, we focus this time on you. Speak through Steve Smith this morning, Lord. Let his words be your words. Open up our hearts and our minds so that we can receive and equip and impact and send your people across the street or around the planet, Lord, wherever you call us to serve. Let us hear you clearly and wait upon that clearly so we may totally be in your will, not in our will, but totally squarely focused in on you. We ask all these things in the great name of Jesus, and it is in his name we pray, and all his people said, Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you would, Colossians chapter 1. And in just a second, we're going to read in verse 18, Colossians chapter 1. In verse 18, it's great to be here at Rock Point. This is my first time uh, to be here. I live in Mansfield, so I drove north. I thought I was almost in Oklahoma before I got here. Uh, this flower mound just keeps going and going and, and all this type of thing. But i uh, very, very grateful uh, to be here. And I do teach at the seminary, and uh, I teach at your behest. In other words, part of your tithes and offerings goes to support what we do, which is training uh, pastors, missionaries, women's ministry directors, all these type of ministries that you uh, fulfill and support. So I'm so grateful for that. When I was in seminary, uh, I was talking to my brother who's six years younger than me. He was in college at the time. And he's now the pastor of MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church in, in Irving. And we were talking, and frankly, we were kind of bragging about all the things we were willing to do for God. You know, we would go to Africa for God. We'd go to China for God. We'd go to Southeast Asia for God. We'd go to Denton for God, you know, just wherever, you know, the remotest parts of earth he would call us, we were willing uh, to go. But we both agreed there was one thing that we were not willing to do for God. Uh, the one thing we were not willing to know for God is being unknown. What I meant was we, we were fine to serve God in any capacity in even a sacrificial way as long as we were recognized what a great job we were doing. You know, I was fine to die in Africa where nobody knew my name as long as after I was dead, somebody wrote a book about the guy who died in Africa. You know, nobody knew his name. Posthumous glory is fine. I just have to be recognized what I was doing for God. And you understand that that is the opposite of Christianity. Christianity is not saying, God, look, here's what I want to do. And God, I want you to recognize that Christianity, by definition, is going to the margins, the periphery, periphery and recognizing that I'm not everything, but that that Jesus is everything. I grew up in Oklahoma and Oklahoma and Texas. We have a kind of a unique Christian culture. Where it, it kind of goes like this, that I'm 
uh, a good person because, first of all, I'm a Texan, so that just makes me a good uh, person. And I love my mother and the military, and uh, I hate Muslims and Democrats, you know, and so I'm just a just a good person. And in this kind of stratosphere of life, I go to church because, I mean, what are you kidding? Not go to, of course I go to church as a part of who I am. My relationship is there. My family's there. My network is there. But, but you already know this. You understand you can spin your wheels in life in and outside of inside in and outside of church and never recognize that you're not everything. I'm not everything. But Jesus is everything. In 1515, 1515, there was a young mathematician by the name of Copernicus. Maybe you remembered what he discovered. We have a great books program in our college where we read some of the great books of Western thought. And he wrote a book called On the Revolution of the Heavenly Bodies. And what he was trying to demonstrate was that the earth was not the center of the universe. Rather, the sun was the center of the universe. Maybe you remember this from ninth grade physics class, what we call a heliocentric universe. Well, most people at that time didn't believe that. Even people in the church thought, well, man is in the image of God, therefore we have to be central. And so they argued with Copernicus and they thought the earth, not the sun, was the center of the universe. But let me ask you this question. Those that disagreed with Copernicus that the sun was the center of the universe, how much did they actually change the position of the sun? And not one degree, did they? Not at all. And, um, we in the church sometimes, myself included, we make these odd statements like, um, you know, I, I want Jesus to be first place in my life. Or, um, well, there's a time, although I, I'd known Jesus, I finally decided I was going to make Jesus Lord of my life. But you understand, we can't make Jesus Lord because he already is Lord. You can't make Jesus anything. Much less that which he already says he is. Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord of your life and my life. He's Lord of every Jew and Muslim and uh, Jehovah's Witness and, and more. He's just Lord of all things. God decided that we true. And Christianity is not making Jesus something. It's backing away and recognizing that what God said is already true really is true. That I'm not everything. But Jesus is everything. Great temptation of the Christian life, you know that, is to fixate on something else besides Christ. You ever found yourself there? Job, relationship, an occupation, and maybe for a long period of time or for a season, we say, okay, God, I've got it. This is everything. You understand, if this passage of Scripture we're going to read is true, that Christ is everything, it, it changes everything. Because it means now that I have to order my finances, my family, my job, my sexuality, my school, we have to order all that around the reality of the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ. And this passage, I know, seems kind of heady and left brain. We're talking about a, a big doctrinal issue, the, the centrality of Christ in all things. But it's extremely practical. And for act, here's the example. The audience to whom it was written was a was a small town by the name of Colossae. Apostle Paul is writing them, and they're tripped up in a certain heresy, a certain belief that's wrong. And what it was was simply this. It was an early form of what would later be called Gnosticism. They believed that there were all of these deities in the world, these spirits, and you worshipped all of them. And the heard of Christ, they said, Christ, we love that. We'll, we'll put Jesus in as one of these deities. And so Paul has to write them and basically say this, look, you have to decide. Is Jesus just something 
or is he everything? And so here's his argument. He argues his point, the fact that Jesus is everything, with kind of four truths. I'm going to read through them just quickly, these truths, and then we're going to come back and just focus on the first one. And so with your Bibles open, look at Colossians chapter 1. And look at verse 15, Colossians 1, 15. Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. And Lord, in Jesus' name, God, would you confront us with the centrality of Jesus Christ? And would you compel us, Lord, to order all of our existence around that central reality? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Let's look at these propositions in here that Paul is using to prove to this church in Colossians and therefore to us by extension That Christ is everything. Here's the first one in 15a. Paul says that Christ is everything because he's the reflection of the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. Uh, The second thing, he says he's the firstborn of all creation. So secondly, Christ is everything because of his creation of the world. Um, His point by being saying firstborn is not that Christ was created. That's not the case at all. But by the fact that Christ existed before everything else, he's Lord over all creation. In other words, they were fixating on substance and matter in the universe and Christ at the same time. They were holding him as equals. And Paul argues, how can you do that? Christ has to be superior because he was first. He existed before all created order. You know that he created all things. Christ wasn't just there at creation. He was active and participating. The second thing that he says in verse 18 is that Christ is everything because by his resurrection, he won the right to, to rule the church. His resurrection from the dead was the first one Christ would, God would raise among all of us who, although we are physically raised from the dead, spiritually he has raised us to new life. The fourth proposition is found there in verse 19, that he's the fullness of God. And that's a, a big theological idea that simply means everything God wanted to reveal to us about himself, he did so through the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally, in verse 20, he's the reconciliation of all things. Christ is the means but which God makes all things right. And this, again, an overwhelming passage of Scripture. Perhaps some people say the, the most explicit uh, description of Christ in all of Paul's writings. So let's just fixate on that first one. Go back to chapter 1, verse 15, and look at the first phrase there in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. So we're trying to demonstrate this point. Christ is everything because... He is the exact reflection of the Father. Now, what does this mean? He's the image of the invisible God. Well, the word image there is the Greek word icon. It's where we get our word icon from, which is somewhat helpful and unhelpful. We have icons on the desktop of our computer that lead us to the program in the computer, but that's not really the sense in which he's using it. The word icon or icon in the Greek means the exact representation. God were to look in a mirror, the image that you would see reflected back is, is Jesus. He gets at that by pitting these two really unusual ideas. Look at it there. He's the image of the invisible God. What a strange statement. How do you have the image 
of something that's invisible. I mean, nobody says, let me show you a picture of nothing. It's kind of the idea. How can you have an image of something that's invisible? Well, you know the truth. It's kind of like this, that God the Father is in heaven. He is completely invisible. But he's made visible. He's revealed to us through the person of Jesus Christ. This is good news and, and this is bad news. The good news is, as believers, we never have to explain God to anyone. All we have to do is get them to Jesus. And if you get them to Jesus, Jesus always takes them to the Father. This is why Jesus said in John 5 that I don't do anything unless I see the Father do it. I don't say anything unless prompted by the Father. He is the exact reflection of the Father. You don't have to sit around and scratch your head about what Jesus feels about social justice or marriage and divorce or giving or tithing or anything. What would Jesus say about those things? We don't have to. What would God think about those things? We don't have to wonder about those because Jesus already said them. And Jesus was the exact representation of the way God would say things. So that's the good news. But here's the here's the bad news. That unless you live in first century Palestine, not only is God the father invisible, but who else is invisible? Jesus. So our job is to get people to the invisible Jesus who will then get them to the invisible Father. So that, again, leads us to another question. How do we know what Jesus thought? What he talked about? Uh, How do we know what was important to him? How do we know the answers to all those questions? This isn't rhetorical, uh, by the way. How how do we know all those things about Christ? It's, It's revealed in his word. So in the word of God, we understand the Son of God and the Son leads us to the Father. By the way, this is why at the seminary, when you send to us your uh, your students who want to come study, those that are studying to be pastors, we only teach one type of preaching. We teach the kind of preaching, <clears throat> some called, called expository preaching, but it just means that you X out the positive truth. You walk through the text of Scripture and explains why it means. You say, why do you do that? It's just because you're a seminary professor and you're uptight. Well, that's part of it, yes, but... Uh, The other part of it is, is that it's only the text of Scripture that leads us to Jesus, and Jesus is the one that leads us to the Father. Now look, you may have heard your pastor or someone else say, look, if you listen to a guy preach, and he's full of great stories and shtick, and he can make you laugh and make you cry, uh, but be careful that he stays too close to the Scripture. That's not just some hyper-seminary of Baptist idea. If someone spends time in this pulpit doing something else but leading us to Scripture, they're keeping us from Jesus. Because Scripture leads us to Jesus, and Jesus leads us to the Father. Again, you could spend your wills in a building like this or somewhere else, but if you don't know the Word, then you don't know the Son. And if you don't know the Son, how can you know the Father? Jesus is everything because He is the exact image of His Father. Now, what I'd like to do in the rest of our time here is take that idea that Christ reflects the Father, the image of the invisible God, and see how that is an important part of Christ's overall plan for your existence and for mine, to remove it from being this heady kind of theological idea and show us how it fits in the overarching trajectory of God's plan. And so let's begin at the beginning. If you would, take your Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to look at three other passages of Scripture, starting off in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 26, Genesis chapter 1 and verse... 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now look at verse 27. 
Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What does does that mean? Well, it simply means I just got attacked. Did anybody else see that? That was. It was a large bird. It looked like a wasp, but that looked four feet when it was coming toward my face. Is it gone now? You're not just messing with me. It's not on my head. Okay. So back to, back to Genesis 1. God created man in, in his image. So, so what does this mean? Well, it means at least two things. First of all, it means that when God created man, he was, uh, he was perfect. God made that. Don't worry about it. He is all a part of creation. Uh, when God created man, he was, he was perfect, exactly in his image. Here's the second thing that it means, and this is the, the critical part. When God created man, he gave him a, a soul that had these reasoning abilities and relationship with him that was unique to all the rest of his creation. Um, I don't know what you feel about the beginning of the earth, creation or evolution or these type of things, but if you believe in evolution, one of the things you've got to wrestle with is at one point did God give man a soul, distinguish him from the animals. So God gave man a soul. You know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned, and when they did, they were kicked out of the garden, which sounds harsh until you understand it in this way. That God created them as his children, exactly like him. Your offspring look like you, right? And when God looked at a sinful Adam and a sinful Eve, it looked nothing like him anymore. God, in essence, says, look, you, you no longer have the family resemblance. And he kicked them out of the house. And now they were outside of the garden eating, uh, pouting, you see. They were still in the image of God, as are we, in so much as they had this soul that can relate to God. But they were no longer in the image of God in so much as they were they were perfect. So they were only, in this sense, partly in the image of God. So how does God respond to this? Well, the answer is found in John. So move to the New Testament. Look at John chapter 1 and verse 18. John chapter 1 and verse 18. John 1.18 could really be a commentary on Colossians 1.15. It's the same idea of the image of the invisible. But look at what it says, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. He's invisible. No one can see him. So isn't that problematic? How do we know about God if we can't see him? Well, not really, because here's the rest of the verse. The only God who has at the Father's side, he, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. Man was made in the image of God. Man crashed the image of God. And so what God did is he sent Jesus in the form of man and so that we could be made back in the form of God. When we lost God's image, God sent himself in the image of man so that we be remade back into the image of God. Now, take your Bibles now and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And look at verse 28, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We're going to look at what is the most familiar passages of Scripture and one of the least understood passages of Scripture. Romans 8, 28. You probably know it by heart, but here's what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Sometimes this is mistaken as this truth. Um, All things work out for good. Kind of in a Hallmark movie lifetime kind of way that 
Sure, things seem horrible right now, but everything will get better eventually. But Scripture never, ever teaches that. Um, this passage is heavily qualified. And we know this from experience. Some things don't work out for good. Some people die. Some parents bury their children. Some things happen that are horrible. How does that work out together for good? Well, here's what it actually says. Look at verse 28 again. We know that for those who love God, all things work out together good. This verse of Scripture has no application for the unbeliever. If you're here today and you've rejected Christ, we're glad you're here. Uh, This is in no way meant to be off-putting. We're glad this is the place you ought to be. But things will not work out better for you. If you reject Christ, you'll go, you'll die, and, and you'll go to hell in separation from God. Things do not work out good for the unbeliever, only for those who who love God. But look at the next part of that verse, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What Scripture is actually teaching is that everything in my life doesn't work out good in the sense of being positive. I go through a hard time. Someday I'll understand it and know it. I I may not. Things do not always work out positively. But what things do work out for is they do work out to accomplish God's purpose. So there's nothing that can come into my life that God can't use to accomplish his purpose. Which begs the question, what is his purpose? Well, look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the what? The image, there it is again, of his son. See what's going on? God created man in the Garden of Eden in his image. Man crashed that image. Therefore, God sent Jesus. And Jesus is operative right now in the life of the believer, shaping you through good circumstances and bad circumstances and a natural genetic disposition and other things that have formed and molded our character. All of that exists to accomplish God's purpose, which is making us more like the image of Christ. Isn't that encouraging? So, you see in this passage the drastic difference between the believer and unbeliever. You don't notice the difference just walking around in a church or in a mall or anywhere else or in a workplace. But here the difference is drastic. For the unbeliever, they're in a trajectory toward death and hell. For the believer, God is using everything to make us back into the image of Christ. The unbeliever has no hope in heaven because only those who are Mike Christ are going to get to heaven. Only those who look like and have the family resemblance are going to be ultimately at the family reunion. And they look the same on paper, but they're miles apart. You understand, I believe that this trajectory from Genesis to John to Romans, when God first created man, notice that plural pronoun. Remember that? Let us make man in our image. Why is that there? Well, because the Father and the Son, the Spirit are communicating within themselves. Let's all make man in our image. That means that when Jesus Christ was making man making you, by extension through Adam, making me, he knew that man would sin. And he knew that it would take his torture and death on the cross to get us back into the image of God. So at creation, the Father was saying, I'll make him. And Jesus saying, okay, Father, if you make him, I'll remake him. Becoming a Christian is being remade back into the image of God that's perfect and therefore acceptable in his eyes before the Father. Now, again, big theological text. Does this have any practical application for us? It it really does. And let me mention two things by way of kind of wrapping this all together. The first thing is this. God will use every circumstance in your life to point you back to the position of the Son, to recognize Christ's supremacy. 
God will use every circumstance in your life to get you to recognize that you're not everything and money is everything and children are everything and spouse, a wife, a husband are everything, but Jesus is everything. I mean, think of Romans 8, 28 this way. Around the believer, there's a force field, if you will, that, that follows us. And within that filter, what God allows is an innumerable amount of blessings. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. Even the, quote, least blessed person in this place has probably been able to see a sunrise and a sunset and hold a newborn baby. God allows all these blessings in our life in just this incredible way. And within that filter, God also measures out an amount of pain, difficulty, and hardship. You say, well, isn't it true that if I love God, I'll have less pain? Absolutely not. If it's true, the more you love God, the happier you'll be and you'll be richer and thinner. How do you explain all the people around the world who are suffering and dying for the cause of Christ who I can only think love God so much more than I do? And this afternoon, I'm going to live in complete comfort. How do you explain that? Well, I explain that of the fact that whatever God allows in this filter, ultimately he can turn for his good. I was in the hospital this last spring and was sick and uh, coming out of it. Someone really graciously said to me, um, boy, Steve, I'm so glad that you're well now and you've recovered, that God healed you because you have to preach. And I really appreciate what she was saying, but you know what? It's just not true. I'd love to preach more than anything else in the world, but I, I don't have to preach. I love my, my children, but God doesn't owe me three children. I've got a phenomenal life, but God doesn't owe me that. I don't have to have those things, but I have to have Jesus. Preaching isn't everything. Family isn't everything. Jesus is everything. And from the day you die, God, if you're a believer, has set you on a trajectory to be made like the image of Christ. You can fight it. You can resist it, but it really doesn't matter. Your resistance against God is like a hamster on a wheel. You can run as fast and hard as you can. Guess where you're going to be after all that fighting and running. You know what I think, too, is as Baptists, I think sometimes we confuse God's forgiveness with forgetfulness. Here's what I I mean. We're kind of going along in life and God stops us and said, you know what, Steve, you've been you've been giving 10 percent of your income for for a lot of years. And uh, you wear that like a badge. I give 10 percent of my income. And if you've done that for 20 years, God's saying, hey, how about mixing it up like 11 percent or 10.5? Could you stretch yourself a little bit? Or here's the way you've been dealing with your thought life. I want you to change and do this. But oftentimes we presume upon God's grace and we say something like this, not this explicitly, but we say, okay, God, look, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I'm not going to. I'm just not. And God, you're bound by your own character. You have to forgive me. So it's win-win. Everybody wins. You get to forgive me, God. Uh, Aren't you blessed? And I get to go on living like I want to live. And so, God, would you please accommodate all your rules around what I ever decided life would be? And God, you have to forgive me. Can I do that to God? You can. But when you stop running and you finally repent, guess where you are? That exact same place. So, but if, if I ignore God in my finances, won't he forget about it? <laughs> Of course not. God wants the best for us. He would be less than a true God if he allowed us to fixate on something else and treat it as if it's everything when it's when it's not. So that leads us to the 
The second thing, that God will not bless the person who thinks there's something is, is everything. So I just, just have to put it to you. Is there something that you think is everything when the truth matters? God is saying to you, that is something, but it's not everything. Because by definition, if I treat something else as everything, then I have to treat Jesus, who is everything, as just, as just something. And just a moment of honesty here. You might be thinking, okay, I, I see where you're going and I see what God is saying to us through his word. But, um, but if that's true, why is it if Christ is the sinner like the brilliant sun that's so much bigger and larger than all of our existence, if that's really true, why is it that my money and my relationship and the stress that I'm going on at work, why is it that seems so real? I mean, it's, it's palpable, it's right in my face and God seems so far away. If it's true that Christ is the center of all things, why does he seem unreal and distant where this existence seems real and alive? That's a, that's a good question. Maybe you've sensed that before. You know, talking about preaching, uh, oftentimes I'll have a student say, okay, uh, that's good, Steve, there's a, there's a scriptural truth, but what does that mean in the real world? Now listen very carefully, I want you to, to get this. You understand that there are two worlds. There's a physical world of desk and carpet and trees and buildings and all these things. And there's an invisible world of heaven and hell and angels and demons, the world we can't see. Listen very carefully. The world you can't see, that is the real world. All this that we can see and touch and taste, it's all going away. This is the fake world, the world we can't see. That's, that's the real world. Think of it. This way, the sun is the center of everything, but every few years something happens and right in the, the middle of the day, the sun disappears. Why is that? The sun disappears. We call that a, an eclipse, right? Where there's an object between us, the earth and the sun. It's the moon. The moon moves between us and the sun. And for a minute, it's almost like night or dust. The, the sun can't be seen. What's interesting about that is that the sun is 400 times larger than the moon. So how do you hide something that's 400 times larger than the object that's hiding it? That seems impossible. You can't hide a beach ball behind a BB, can you? Well, you can. If you put the beach ball way over there in the corner and I put the BB right up to my eye, I could think the beach ball just disappeared. But listen, the issue is not what's bigger. The issue is what's closer. It's not a matter of superiority. It's a matter of proximity. Now listen very carefully. Christian or no Christian, if we spend our lives completely absorbed and obsessing and loving all the somethings instead of the everything, ultimately we're going to think that this is real and this is fake. The truth of the matter is nothing could be farther from the truth. Most of the things I've obsessed about this week aren't going to matter next week, much less than a hundred years from now. They're not real. They're going away. They aren't everything. Jesus is everything. Being a believer in Christ is saying, God, I understand that. and I'm going to recognize that what you said to be true is true. And I'm going to treat the fake world as the fake world. And the real world is the real world because I'm I'm not everything. Jesus is everything. So, again, I just. Put the question back on us. What is it for you that you might be treating as something that's more significant than it really is? For me, for a long time, the issue was getting married. I was a graduate from seminary and went to my first pastor. And when I was a pastor, 
Uh, for the first four years of it there, I was I was single. I I, uh, I wasn't married. And um, it's kind of odd being a single pastor. You know, there aren't a lot of singles bars for for pastors. There's some, but not a lot. So it's kind of hard to to meet people. And uh, I noticed also, if you're single, maybe you can relate to this. A lot of my married friends, they're very happy. They were well-meaning. But they treated my singleness kind of like leprosy, like it was a disease, you know. I remember I was going to preach at a conference, and I met a lady a few minutes before I was supposed to speak. And she said, you know, real kind, she said, well, tell me about your wife. I said, oh, I'm not married. And she said, oh, like I was in polio or something. I was like, well, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm fine. I also noticed that my parents were completely committed to fixing me up. And the older I got, the lower their standards got. You know, we we think she's a girl, you know, just get married already and start giving us grandkids was kind of what they were thinking. And so although I was content in a certain way, I, I really wanted to be married, frankly. But more than anything, I wanted this social pressure to get off of me. I'm an introvert. And I don't like people in my business. And so um, God used that very strategically in my life to bring me to a place of brokenness. And um, I went through a period of fasting about uh, some other things for 40 days. I've never done that before. And toward the end of that, um, I was in my office studying. This is 1997. I came across... Psalm 25, and here's what it says. The Lord directs sinners in the way. That's an odd passage, isn't it? You expect it to say the Lord directs the righteous or the really, really good in the way. But the word sinners there means those who habitually sin. So God takes those people who, by their sinfulness, don't understand what to do, and he He leads them in the way. And the word direct there was used in extra-biblical literature to describe the way an archer would, by the tension of the bow and the direction of his hand, direct an arrow, or the way a a farmer would cut a path in the ground to irrigate his field. So what it's saying is, God takes people who by their own sinful nature don't know which way to go, and he, he cuts a path for them. And I don't remember exactly the way I felt in the moment, but God essentially said to me, look, Steve, if you're going to be married, you're not going to miss that. You just stay in the way. If I want you to be married, I'll put somebody in the way. I'm not going to let you miss something that would be good for you. A friend of mine said it this way. The issue is effectiveness. If you're more effective as single, God may keep you single. If you're more effective married, God may leave you to marriage. So just keep that up to God. And that next week I was speaking at a, a singles uh, banquet. A bunch of singles were there. Not that I was a great speaker, but I was a single pastor. So it's kind of a, a freak, you know, like just an oddity there. And so I was speaking and... Um, I just shared with them, I wasn't planning on doing it, but I shared with them what I just shared with you about Psalm 25. And I said, look, I'm to this place now that I'm just going to stay in the way. And um, don't you dare leave the way, because if God puts somebody in the way, I'll get married. But if God doesn't put somebody in the way, I'll die single. Because I knew how many lives had been ruined by somebody chasing some relationship that never was intended by God. And when I said that, it was on a Thursday that next week. Um, the last day of that fast, I went on a blind date with the girl that I would marry after four years of, of not dating. And it was this God was saying to me, look, you don't have to be married. Marriage isn't everything. You don't have to have children. Children aren't everything. You don't have to be successful. Success isn't everything. But you have to have Jesus because Jesus is everything. And I feel like that once God saw that I recognized that Christ was central to everything, 
Then as a loving father, he was able to bring all the things in the stratosphere of my life to complement that. Do you see that? But he wouldn't be a loving father if he allowed me to keep over assessing of something that was everything when it was really just, it was just something. So if Christ is the image of the invisible God, we have to ask this question, is Jesus everything or is he just something? Father God, we are grateful for your love for us. God, we thank you that you are so loving. Father, you refuse to allow your believer to treat something as everything when it is just, in fact, something, Father. God, I thank you that you block us. I thank you that you cause us pain. Father, I thank you that you give us all these joys in our life. Everything constructed toward the ends of making us like the person of Christ. Lord, I praise you for that. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that, Lord, we would, in a willing surrender, enjoy the joy of surrender by giving up to you and recognizing what you already said is true, that Christ is supreme over everything. And it's his name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.